This is the Passive Real Estate Strategies Podcast, where our goal is to educate you about the ways to create passive wealth through real estate methods that do not require your time. I'm your host, Justin Moy with President's Club Investors. Let's get right into the show. Hey, investors. Welcome back to another episode of Passive Real Estate Strategies. Today, I am sitting down with Bryce Keffler of Do Wealth. Now, Bryce is responsible for growing and scaling the day-to-day of their virtual family office, leading their clients to well into the seven figures of wealth, building out entire financial plans for very high income earners and really taking their clients to the next level, wherever that is for them. So we are extremely excited to have you here, Bryce, to just share your knowledge about not just real estate, but just finance really in general and how real estate fits into these portfolios, man. So thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, no, thanks, Justin. Glad to be here. And hopefully it can add some value to your audience uh, in, in some ways. We'll find out. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, your your audience really is a lot of entrepreneurs, right? So they'll come to you, uh, they have their business or their variable income. And I think the strategy kind of changes when that's the case, right? Because if if I work in, you know, human resources or something like that, I know, hey, I make 80 grand every single year, 85 next year, I'll get a 5% raise the rest of my career. You know, that kind of changes the dynamic of how people invest. So when somebody is highly maybe commission-based or highly variable income, how does that change the way you see their portfolio versus maybe what their brother or sister is doing who has something a little bit more you know, even keel? Yeah, great great question. So when, when entrepreneurs come to us and we work with entrepreneurs making between one to $20 million of take-home pay. So like you said, Justin, I mean, these people are in the top 0.1% of income earners, but to your point, they're business owners. And so anybody who's running a business knows that there's variability and there's an immense amount of risk in running a business, hence how there's huge returns and huge income potential, but also I've seen some massive losses. But because of that variability, when we're designing our and building our virtual family office for our clients and designing that, that financial plan, it all comes back to what we call making rich real. So we coined that make rich real, and that may mean different things to different entrepreneurs that we work with. But one of the ingredients in making rich real is going to be figure out how we're going to monetize the business value and really create this path to financial freedom. And when we think about building this path to financial freedom, we're going to go based off the def- definition that each entrepreneur has. And so all of your listeners probably have a different definition of financial freedom. And based off of that definition, we need to create a strategy in order to have that be the output, financial freedom. And so when we have variability in the income, it's all about harvesting excess cash flow from the business and building that portfolio that maybe now we don't need to turn on the passive income. And so we're going to be more growth oriented. Um, but maybe we're kind of getting towards the tail end of the business is starting to decline. It's in a secular, secular decline. And we need to start turning more income on from that portfolio. So we focus more on income generating assets. And then also maybe we've got entrepreneurs who are focused on having a liquidity event. That's going to be a much different path because maybe they want to reinvest all of their excess cash flow back in the business so they can sell and get the highest multiple possible. Then once they have that liquidity event, then they'll have that pot of cash to then deploy. So it really depends on the client's goals and objectives and where they and their business is at within their life cycle. But most entrepreneurs that I work with have the goal of replacing kind of their monthly annual income with passive cash flow sources. And that's where the asset classes such as real estate, which you're really familiar with, that's where that generally comes into play because it tends to have a higher yield or cash distribution rate than other assets such as stocks, bonds, private equity, venture capital, crypto, et cetera. Yeah. And I love what you said that. I mean, there's 
there's a lot of different phases, right? And I, I always talk about this to our investors is really, if you simplify it, there's kind of two phases, your growth and then your cash flow, at least in the real estate game. So it's pretty similar. And, you know, we do things from new builds all the way to self-storage, all the way to these short-term rentals, which we've talked about, which have higher cash flows. But if you're investing, you know, 50,000 bucks, 100,000 bucks, okay, a six, 7% cash flow is not really going to change your life. Right? It's hard to build something massive. Maybe you do need to take a little bit more risk, a little bit more reward, hit those big equity multiples to really build something up. So that's one of the reasons why I love real estate. Is that how does real estate fit into what you guys do most of the time? Is real estate something that everybody should have in their portfolio, at least to some extent? Or are there certain stances where you're like, hey, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't perfect for you? Yeah. Uh, we when we look at building our clients asset allocations we benchmark based off of the average billionaire's average or allocation and that's a study put out every single year by ubs and looking at the 2023 ubs study the average billionaire again this is average so there's going to be a huge spread here has 13 percent of their entire portfolio in real estate so it is one of the largest asset classes now billionaires also have access to a lot more asset classes than most people do that are probably listening to this that i do um, and you know if you're an accredited investor you do have access to a little bit more so that's the framework we use in the lens of which we look to kind of say okay hey here's what the average billionaire is doing maybe this is a good starting point maybe we move up maybe we move down a little bit based off of your personal preference as a client to real estate as an asset class but I do think that real estate is an important core building block of every single asset allocation. Personally, it is one of my biggest core building blocks along with the equity in my business. I'm comfortable with the stock market. I've got some exposure there. But then, yes, when I look at real estate, both on the equity side and on the lending, the hard money or asset-based lending side, it is one of the core building blocks of my portfolio. So every single client that we've got, um, I should say every single client, but I should say most of our clients uh, will have a rather large allocation to real estate, either on the equity or the debt side in their portfolio. Yeah. And so I love that you monitor what these highly successful people are doing, right? And part of that is, yes, while we may not have the access that some of these billionaires have to certain deal flow, you can kind of pick and choose what you can do. You can sort of, you know, they always say success leaves clues. And there's literally a clue you said every single year it comes out. It's not a clue. It's the whole freaking roadmap. So how have you seen in those studies real estate or other alternative assets fluctuate across the years? Have you seen real estate in those portfolios growing or decreasing, or do they tend to go through you know these five, eight year cycles of recessions or how has real estate changed in those uh, studies that you analyze? Yeah. So unequivocally, the allocation of two alternative assets has increased substantially since the great financial crisis in 08, 09. Allocations around that point were oftentimes less than 20%. Looking at the study right now, 45% of the average billionaire's allocation is in alternative asset classes, which we would consider private equity, whether that's direct or fund of funds, real estate, hedge funds, crypto commodities, artwork, precious metals, that, those types of alternatives. So again, almost half of the entire average billionaire allocation is now in alternative asset classes. And now what's happened is given the rise of technology, it's really democratizing uh, the ability for accredited investors to get more access to alternative investments as well. So now we're seeing a kind of move down market is the really big trend that I'm seeing in my space that I don't work with people who have a billion dollars, but I work with people that have between 10 and 100 million. That's kind of the net worth of our typical client range. All of these clients now have access to alternative assets as well. Real estate being one of the ones that has the lowest barrier to entry. And also real estate is just really, it's easier for clients to 
grasp. They see it, yeah. they feel it. It's tangible. Um, you know, depending on the type of investment, it's like you said, the Airbnb, um, they could have really strong cash flow from day one. And then also when we look at the billionaires allocation, you know, like hedge funds, our clients aren't investing a lot in hedge funds because the size of check you need to write to get into one of the top tier hedge funds is going to be eight to nine figures. My clients can't write eight to nine figures. So although the typical billionaire has a 7% allocation to hedge funds, my clients are going to be usually less than 1%. So usually that will be reallocated into most likely real estate or some of these other alternative buckets to kind of, again, mirror at a rough high level what the billionaires are doing in terms of their strategic allocation. Yeah. And so how important is it, and you mentioned this uh, briefly, uh, like tangible asset. And that's one thing that I personally do really enjoy about real estate. I know a lot of people, you know, they either love or they say, yeah, it doesn't really matter to me, but how important is it for you or in your opinion that you're investing in something real that you can touch that to recreate takes a lot of effort. I mean, I know that's why a lot of people, they say, Hey, once, once the dollar got off the gold standard, they things kind of, you know, hit the fan there. Um, Cause you could just create it with no additional effort, but things like precious metals, things like real estate um, artwork, you can't just create them. So how important is that to you when you're looking at asset allocation? Or do you think that's somewhat of an overplayed you know, benefit? I think it's really important, Justin. And, but I, I'll take a different approach to answering that question. And that I think it's important from a behavioral standpoint. Mm-hmm. You know, as a financial advisor, I need to, I know the math and I know the theory and the studies, but there's a whole other part to this, which is called the psychology. The human is the one who's making the investments and humans don't always act rational as much as we like to think that we do. Mm-hmm. And sometimes there's something to be said of just, sticking with an investment approach and by driving by that property and knowing that it's yours compared to, for example, if you own stocks and, you know, if you were holding those in March of 2020, that you saw them going down 30%, it's a lot easier just to wake up and say, this is crushing me. This feels really bad. I want to sell and get it out. Whereas when you drive by that real estate property and you see the tenants pull up, even if the real estate values have maybe gone down and you're checking in Zillow, you don't see that red, you know, font every day. And so that may just result in you holding on to that property longer. So behaviorally, if you're not selling low, like you may be doing in the stock market by just holding on to that tangible asset, I think it can produce better results. So I think I do like the fact that it's tangible, but I think it's really more of, from my perspective, a psychological or behavioral reason of why sometimes those asset classes perform better. And in my space of dealing with multi-generational wealth transfer, there's a common or a kind of a joke that goes around that we know that the entrepreneurs or the families that have substantial amount of their wealth tied up in real estate have the highest probability of transitioning that wealth to future generations. And the reason why is because the future generation, it's so hard to sell real estate, right? You, you have the illiquidity and that by the time you want to sell and you find the buyer, the market's improved and you feel better. Whereas if you transition on a portfolio and they're just seeing it go down, 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 they're going to sell. It's human behavior. So that's why it's kind of a joke that the, the highest probability of your family retaining wealth is to put them all in illiquid assets, because by the time they figure out how to sell that asset, that the market will have improved and they're just going to sit on it. And that's really all you really, really need to do is bet on time as our horizon to let the money compound for us. Yeah. And I have heard people talk about that too, is you know, li- liquidity kills yields because people do that. And even if you know on a, on a big picture, yeah, it'll self-correct. And I think a lot of people, they do that when they invest, they say, yeah, you know, the S P 500, it always goes up if you just give it enough time. But then when you get put in that position, it's really hard. Um, yeah. You think, man, I just, and now it's gamified, right? Like you got an app 
four might, you have to call your guy, Hey, I want to, and then maybe he'll get back to you in a day or two. And then, you know, cause all those other clients are calling him to sell their stuff off. But now it's like just one button click and you're done. Yeah. And then you can, you can ACH things back and forth. So I think that's really gamified things and has made people realize, no, you're, you're actually losing real money by like by selling at these times. Um, so that illiquidity, is that something that you purposefully will build in or look at in somebody's portfolio and say, Hey, we want X percent to be in illiquid assets for reasons kind of like that. Or is that a purposeful strategy that you use? Yeah. Good question. The answer would be no. Right now we do not intentionally try to tie up any of the capital, uh, to be, get illiquid. Now finance theory will teach you that because an asset is illiquid, there should be an illiquid premium. You should you know, substantiate or justify a higher rate of return because you don't have the liquidity. So we still look at illiquidity as a risk and as a huge factor that needs to be baked into investing in alternative assets, especially given what you open up this conversation with about the fluctuations within income. So although behaviorally, I think illiquidity could be a good thing because it could reduce the probability of you selling your assets at the worst possible time, which is when everyone is on the street screaming and there's fear yeah. <laughs> rampant in the system. So I think it could actually be a benefit psychologically, but also we need to make sure that we are taking care of the cash flow situation because if we are stuck with a, a too much of our portfolios illiquid and an amazing investment opportunity pops up or you just want to build that house or whatever it may be, you know, dump more money into your business, we want to make sure that we have liquidity solved for. So as part of our building of our clients' asset allocations, liquidity is a huge consideration because I've got multiple clients that have 30, $40 million portfolios, but they'll get into liquidity crunches because they're over allocated to alternative assets. And it's so clumpy and lumpy in terms of the income. And so sometimes we will invest in maybe the stock bond market or other liquid assets solely just so we can put lines of credit against those assets and use them as collateral to then create some sort of liquidity. Although we don't necessarily, you know, the client may not be fond of necessarily investing in those asset classes. We need to just for liquidity's sake. Yeah. So Liquidity is a huge part of the portfolio construction and it can be a, a hindrance, but it can also be a blessing. Um, and I think the important thing is as an investor, it's like, you know, they always say that you, you have a game plan until you get punched in the face, right? And then that's when you really figure out if, uh, you know, how, how your game plan goes. And until your portfolio is down 30, 40% in the stock market, you may say like, yeah, I've read the books. I know buy, hold, follow the Warren Buffett approach, but until that happens, you really don't know how you're going to react. And I think as an investor, it's sometimes good to get punched in the face and you'll be like, okay, A, I sold out. If I sold out, I shouldn't be doing this. I need to take less risk or I need to move to a different asset class, maybe such as real estate, where I don't feel like that, where I have to sell. Or B, maybe you held the line, but it was incredibly painful. You had a lot of stress. You stopped working out. You ate like crap. Okay, maybe I should dial my risk back and I should go to a liquid, right? Or maybe you rode the wave and you're fine. Okay, maybe you should put more money in that asset class. So I think until you, as you grow as an investor, there's there's no there's no substitution for experience and, and everyone's going to respond different ways. And I think until you go through it, it's hard for you or any investor, I should say, to know how they're going to respond in those situations. But uh, that would be my recommendation to those investors who haven't gone through that yet is just see how it goes, see how it feels, and then iterate after that. Yeah, to see how it goes. I mean, it's it's tough to prepare for those things, right? I mean, there's certain things where you can't practice and 
you know, you know what you should do. It's almost like giving relationship advice. Everybody can always give such good relationship advice to their friends and family, but when they're in it, their friends are like, what the hell, you know, well, you were just telling me the other month to do this and that made total sense. So yeah, I think, you know, you can't really replace that experience or, or a team like you who's been there, done that and say, Hey, yes, you know, this is like what will happen. You know, if you do this, you can see these consequences. If you do this, you can see these, you know, just playing that game. If you want to replace your income with passive income, then head to the show notes and download our free Retire Within 10 bundle. Now, this includes tons of resources that will help you strategize replacing your income with passive income. This is by far the most valuable download I've seen in our industry, and it's something we are super proud of. Head to the show notes and download that now. So what opportunities right now are either you personally or you as an organization seeing maybe over the next five years or so as things that are really exciting? Again, whether it could be backed by data or it's just something that you really enjoy uh, personally, mm-hmm. are there new asset classes? Are there new businesses, new industries that you think over the next five years people should be paying more attention to? Yeah, great question. So let me, uh, I'll start by answering you know, sometimes when people zig, you want to zag. And I've seen a bunch of money coming in from the Inflation Reduction Act into electrifying the grid, electric vehicles are being subsidized. They want to put a lot of money into alternative fuel resources and generating uh, generation. I think maybe zagging the other way. Right now, some people have gotten really bearish on oil and gas. And I think that that may create some opportunities, although the price of oil is a little bit high. But you're seeing from, you know, OPEC's perspective, they are cutting supply already and they are going to hold the price of oil or price of oil, you know, probably try to target that that $100 and above. So I think that there's some opportunities potentially moving forward in oil and gas. And that is maybe a counter, uh, you know, that'd be kind of zigging when everyone else is zagging, so to speak. But the other thing that could be lucrative to some people listening to this is, you know, with oil and gas, there are some great tax benefits, depending on how you invest, you are able to take some tax write offs, even if you're a passive investor in oil and gas, and of course, consult with your tax professional, but that's kind of a little uh, icing on the cake. So I think that that could be a, a, I think, longer term in 30, 40 years, that asset class may not be looking so great. But I think for the next decade, a lot of people are flying away from there. And it may be a little bit premature, because it's going to take a long time for us to build up the grid and really electrify everything. Yeah. Another thing is, I think there's going to be some great opportunities in multifamily. Right now, there's been such cap rate compression in that space. It's been really easy since the great financial crisis to make money in, in multifamily. You know, cap rates have been compressing, and it's it's really been tough to lose money. But I think that there's going to be some novice investors that, if they're on some interest only debt, and are going to be forced to refi at you know the current market rates, which are a lot higher. And I think that's going to create an opportunity for a lot of smart, savvy, and experienced. Mm-hmm multifamily operators to come in and maybe take the debt off of some people's plates and really just, um, you know, turn those, some of those properties around, increase occupancy. Uh, So I think there's going to be some good space, some good opportunities there because of what the havoc that's happening right now in the interest rate environment, how fast things have gone up. And I think uh, another thing that another asset or asset classes, I'm starting to see a lot more traction or interest in is going to be more in the collectible space. At least this could be just the lens that I'm seeing through my clients, but a lot more clients really interested in looking at wine as an asset class, high-end whiskey as an asset class, art as an asset class. Now, not just, you know, the low, the stuff that I drink or the stuff that I, I'm talking, you know, the Monet's, the, you know, those types of paintings. Um, those, so I'm really starting to see a lot more interest in this and building this part up as a, as an alternative asset class. And also starting to see some banks willing to actually collateralize those assets and provide lines of credit against those asset classes as well. So 
I think those are some things. And then kind of going back to the real estate, um, one, one asset class I'm starting to see a little bit of traction in uh, going a little bit against the grain is going to be retail. I think everyone with COVID said retail is dead. And we saw the whole proliferation of online shopping. Everyone wanted to move online, but working with a lot of business owners that are in the D to C or direct to consumer space selling products, a lot of their expansion plans is actually moving into retail and the physical locations because what's happening is with the customer acquisition costs on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, on YouTube has really gone up because a lot more people yeah. are buying advertising. And so it's increased the customer acquisition costs. And now it's starting to pencil out where maybe it makes sense to get some retail space. And so again, maybe that, you know, if you want to bet against the trend, maybe it's going a little bit too far. And I'm seeing some, uh, some interesting retail spaces, kind of little carve outs, big box retail spaces that, um, you know, are, are, penciling pretty well right now. And the cap rates are very lucrative when I'm comparing them to maybe industrial or self-storage or multifamily. So again, you'd, you'd have to have a little bit of fortitude to bet against the grain there. But I think the math is starting to pencil out a little bit because so many people have abandoned that asset class or are fleeing that asset class. Yeah. I, I love what you said. I mean, when, when other people zig, you want to zag. And I think that's, you know, every business mentor I've ever had has said something similar. Um, and so I, you made a ton of great points and I'm taking so many notes about all these different asset classes coming up and, and what you're seeing. And, you know, I, I somewhat agree with you on the retail space. We're looking at some retail deals now and they've just been structured in a little bit different ways that have mitigated some risk that prevent us previously from getting into retail. And, you know, I think there's good opportunity there. Um, I want to hit you with, you know, put you on the spot here. When other people zig, you want to zag. And we mentioned a couple of asset classes within real estate space. The big blaring alarm, right, is now is office. Yeah. So do you believe that there's a comeback for office? Do you because people are zigging the hell away from that? <laughs> so you can yeah. buy these things that, you know, I think what was the one in San Francisco it just sold for I think 40% value or something, something yeah. crazy. So do you think that that asset class is too far gone? Or do you think, hey, that's kind of, yeah, that's a zig. And if you want to zag, you can lean into that and, and really come out ahead. Yeah, that is, you are putting me on the spot there. <laughs> I would say that individually, I would stay away from that for now. But mm -hmm. I am starting to see a few things. One is that anecdotally, the big companies are starting to want more people to come back to the office. So I think that the remote, I think most people are going to end up in a hybrid space. I know the employees are really pushing back on this. But I do think that there's going to be a little bit more of a go back to the office kind of vibes. Now, even if a company wants people in two days a week, you know, two out of five, then hypothetically, you only need 40% of the retail space or sorry, the office space that you had before. So by definition, we wouldn't get back to kind of where we were in terms of demand. Another thing that could be a little bit more anecdotal than data driven, I, I actually have a few clients who are in the real estate space and they're working on projects that have um, some cities have rezoned some of the office into multifamily and they're getting, they're picking up those assets at very, you know, favorable comps because they're buying them at based off of the comps of an office space, but then they're putting in a lot of TIs, improvements, building out then and turning those into multifamily. Um, and so, you know, those deals have penciled out. There's a substantial amount of execution risk. I think that's a relatively new endeavor to go down that route, but we'll see. Um, but I, I think there's always people looking to do business, just like you, Justin, right? And looking to do creative types of deals. And people are starting to kind of arbitrage that to be like you and say, hey, office space looks really cheap. If I could acquire here, put an X amount of CapEx and then turn this into a mixed use space with multifamily, you know, and office, you know, there could be something I'm cooking with here. So 
again, I, I haven't seen the data to substantiate that, but I have seen a few of our clients in the real estate space actually biting off some of those projects, getting some financing for those projects. And um, only time will tell if, if how those perform, but um, there's starting to be some movement. So we'll see what happens. Yeah. And I'm so curious how those go too, because it's one of those things that sounds really good on paper. Hey, buy these offices that are empty, convert them into multifamily because housing is in, in such shortage right now. But a lot of people don't realize, okay, when you go to an office, usually we'll have like one bathroom for a whole floor and a lot of plumbing is vertical. So like you said, there's a ton of executional risk. It's very expensive to move plumbing around. And so unless you're going to maybe do your best to pitch like a dorm style or extremely low income housing or affordable housing, you know, you're going to have a lot of operational within changing the plumbing within the area. So it's one of those things I think it sounds really, really good on paper, but like you said, the operational risk and the execution is massive because you don't just have to buy the building at a cheap cost. You have to buy it for below the cost it would take you to just do that fresh, right? Because I got this thing down. So yeah, I, I love what you said about all these things though. I think you know, when you zig, when other people zig, you zag is uh, such a key point in what a lot of people and how a lot of people make money and really see different opportunities. So, you know, Bryce, I appreciate you coming on the show and really sharing all of your knowledge with us. Uh, for anybody listening out there, this might be a good fit for them to get in touch with you. You know, what's the best way to learn more about you guys, what you do and get in touch if it's appropriate? Yeah, thanks, Justin. So just go to our website, dowealth.com. That's D-E-W-W-E-A-L-T-H.com. That's our website. And, uh, We've got an intake form there for anyone who's interested and, and maybe a good fit for us. And we could be a good fit for them. Um, they can go in that way. So appreciate you having me on and awesome uh, talk and shop, as I like to say. And hopefully uh, your your listeners got some some uh, nuggets here. Yeah, absolutely. So this is we're going to put that link in the show notes. Of course, while you're there, if you haven't already, make sure you download our free book, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies. Bryce, man, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate you. Well, that's it for today's show. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you're looking to learn more about passive real estate investments, make sure you head to our show notes and download our free ebook, The Definitive Guide to Passive Real Estate Strategies, where we reveal the ins and outs of the truly passive ways to invest in real estate. We'll see you on the next episode.